Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for November 24th, 2019. Today, Brother Omar brings us a message called Charismatic Gifts, Gift of Tongues. Now, Brother Omar asks the questions, what is the meaning of the day of Pentecost? And what happened to the disciples in Acts chapter 2? And what is the biblical understanding of speaking in tongues? So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. So we are, we are covering the issue of the charismatic gifts or the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Uh, last time I did like a brief history of the Pentecostal charismatic movement because typically when you talk about this stuff, you have to address the issue of Pentecostal charismatics and stuff like that. Now, if you remember last time, we've been dividing or separating the gifts into these different categories, which would be like gifts of offices or leadership, that's your teachers, pastors, etc. And then you have gifts of exhortations or permanent gifts, as some people call them, which would be like, um, you know, things like, you know, gift of teaching, exhortation, helps, mercy, hospitality, things like that. And then you have what some people would call the charismatic gifts, which would be Things like divine healing, speaking with tongues, things like that, all right? Now, we also talked a little bit about the different perspectives. You will have the continuing perspective, meaning all of the gifts, including the miraculous gifts, are still operating, will operate forever until Jesus comes back. The other perspective would be the idea that the miraculous gifts were given as a sign for a particular time and purpose and reason, and therefore, with that purpose being met, then the gifts ceased, all right? The common operation of these gifts went away, primarily with the apostles' ministry. Once the apostles died out, the Bible was completed, the New Testament was written, and so the need to authenticate the writings of the apostles was no longer there, and therefore the gifts would cease with that, all right? Now, irregardless of what positions you hold, I believe that when you look at the scripture, ultimately, it's not going to matter, okay? And today, we're going to be addressing the issue of tongues. We're going to talk about the gift of speaking with tongues. What does that mean? How does the Bible present this? And how was it operating in the New Testament? Now, before I begin, I'm going to give a couple of disclaimers, okay? We're going to be speaking about the gift of tongues, and many people, perhaps some of you, may have had an experience with the Pentecostal charismatic understanding of speaking in tongues, okay? I have had my experiences in the past, and the last thing that I want to do is question people's experiences, right? Because typically that's a losing battle, right? People that have an experience, that went through something. Experiences are subjective, meaning that are based on your feelings, opinions, experiences, etc., and are limited to a person's perspective, all right? So therefore, they're open to whatever interpretation, okay? Now, I'm not trying to say the experiences are not good. They are, but they don't always determine truth, okay? Truth is objective. It lies outside of you, right? It was there before you. It's going to be there after you, and therefore, it becomes subjective when we interact with it, but... Ultimately, what matters is, what I'm trying to say with this, is we're going to look at how the Bible describes this gift operating. And so we're going to have to learn, if we've had an experience, to say, does my experience match what the Bible teaches? Because the Bible is true. All right? So, before I begin, I want to clarify some terminology that I'm going to be using. Okay? I'm going to define some terms. All right? In preparation for this series, um, years that I've studied this subject, I have read a million articles, listened to dozens of sermons, podcasts, looked at the scriptures, and a lot of people who oppose or perhaps have a different view from the Pentecostal view tend to do a lot of mocking, right? They use a lot of mocking language when referring to the way Pentecostals do things. I want to avoid that. Okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to mock anybody or belittle people or anything like that, all right? So I will use some terminology, which I feel is more respectful. 
Uh, one of which is going to be, probably the only one that I'm going to be defining right now, would be ecstatic utterance. Very fancy, all right? Ecstatic utterances are unintelligible, non-language jargon, okay? Fancier word than just saying things like gibberish, or I've heard things like yabba dabba do. some preachers say that. I'm not gonna do none of that, all right? I'm gonna use the term ecstatic utterance, all right? So when you hear that, you know, what does that mean? Ecstatic utterances means unintelligible jargon, whatnot, all right? So, okay. There are also people that say things like, this type of practice is demon possession, things like that. I will not say that. I don't think that's true. And I will refrain from any type of that sort of belittling language while I preach to them, okay? So that's my disclaimers, all right? So let's begin. We will go to the book of Acts, chapter two. Amen. All right? So if you've, you've been in a Pentecostal church, you know that is the verse or the whole text, all right? Pastor Bolden is very excited about this. Today might be the day for him, I don't know. Chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to read all the way through 11. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 11 of the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, <clears throat> both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All right, first important thing, we're going to go through this all over again, and we're going to pick out the, the, the details. Number one, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, the writer of the book of Acts is Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And he is giving us a history of what happened during the early church. And Luke is really good because he provides a lot of details. He actually did research um, and interview certain people. He was a, I believe he was a physician of some sort. And so he provides a lot of detail in his narrative. So he says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now the day of Pentecost was a Jewish holiday which occurred 50 days after Passover. Hence the name Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, okay? Now it was originally called the Feast of Weeks and it was a harvest festival celebrating the first fruit of the wheat harvest. The reason why that is important is because, as you know, God, in his sovereignty, assembled things for a reason, right? So this is the day of harvest. This time around, God is going to do his own harvesting, okay? And so... The reason why this is important is because it provides you with the context that sets this whole thing up. The Jews, during the Passover, wherever they were from, wherever they were at, would go to Jerusalem if you could, if you could afford it, and they would spend Passover there, and they would stay all through the whole festivals all the way to Pentecost, okay? And so the setting is, it was the day of Pentecost, okay? And you have Jews from different places that came down to Jerusalem, all right? Now, the other thing that I want to say is the book of Acts is a historical book, okay? It narrates historical events. It's not a pastoral book telling you this is how you do things. The difference is, is that when you have a historical book, 
The historical book simply gives you history of what happened. It doesn't necessarily tell you, hey, this is how you should always do things. Okay, so that's important for us to know. The book of Acts is a historical book, all right? Um, so the day of Pentecost was an event that marked the commencement of the New Testament church and the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus had promised his disciples that they were going to receive a helper. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this promise that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1 and in the gospel is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit during the day of Pentecost. All right? So this is God's harvest. All right. So let's go back to see exactly what happened during this day. All right? So chapter 2, verse 1. The day of Pentecost arrives. They were all together. They were following the instructions of Jesus, go and wait for me in Jerusalem. Okay, so they were all together in one place. This is about 120 people. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. So first, we want to define the word tongues. In the Greek, the word is glossa. You get your term glossary from here, okay? Glossa, that's the Greek term. It has two primary meanings. Tongues, like the thing that is in your mouth, okay? It's the primary, one of the primary meanings. Or a tongue is language. As in Spanish, French, Russian, Hebrew, Greek, okay? This is the two primary meanings of this word, all right? Let me look at some text. I'm going to let the Bible define the word. Mark chapter 7. This is the descriptions of a physical tongue, that being the thing in your mouth, all right? Mark chapter 7, verse 32. They brought to him a man, this is Jesus, who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after speeding, he touched his glossa, his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened. And his glossa, tongue, was released. And he spoke plainly. Okay? That's a physical tongue. Same word the Bible is using. James chapter 3, verse 5 says this, And so also the tongue, or the glossa, is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue, glossa, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire curse of life, and set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the glossa, the tongue, okay? So glossa in the Bible is used in reference to a physical tongue, your organ, the thing that's in your mouth, all right? Revelation chapter 5, we see the other use the Bible gives of this word. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language, glossa, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Glossa here means language. What language? Well, it, it language from tribes and peoples and nations. So God has ransomed people from every tribe, nation, and <clears throat> glossa, meaning the language that they speak. All right? 
Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and glossa, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 10, as, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations in glossa, languages and kings. And you will find, and I don't, I'm not going to go through them all, but you will find similar wording in Revelations 11, 13, 14, 17, and just about everywhere in Revelation where the word language is used is referring to human languages. It's referring to human languages, and the word that is used is glossa. Okay? So glossa, two meanings, your physical tongue or a language that you speak. All right? So, in fact, in the Spanish language, what is this in Spanish? Lengua. So what is this in Spanish? Lenguaje. It's, it's, lenguaje has, in Spanish, the base is tongue. Because it's the same, similar idea. All right? And that's how it's used in the Bible. All right? So let's go back and, read, knowing that, read through Acts chapter 2 again. All right? Verse 2, and suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So, here's what's happening. They're in the house. They hear a sound, all right? There's a sound of a mighty rushing wind, okay? They're not the only people who hear it. We'll see that later on. And all of a sudden, divided tongues appears to them, or appears to each of them. Now, my contention is, and I guess I have no way of proving this, I wasn't there, but because the tongues appear to them, I believe there could have been some sort of manifestation of an actual physical tongue, okay, that appears as a fire, and it rests upon each of them. Now, remember... This is a miraculous event, all right? If you remember from the Bible, we were speaking, every time God is going to do something, you see similar things. For example, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he comes down, what did the people of Israel saw? Lightning, thunder, smoke, wind, all sorts of visual, physical manifestation, letting everybody know that this guy, Moses, didn't just go up there and had a barbecue and came down, but he was actually with God. How do we know Moses was with God up there? I don't know. Lightning, thunder, smoke, fire stuff is happening. Unless Moses has crazy equipment to pull this off, I'm pretty sure that was God speaking. All right. And so something similar may have happened here. All right. They might have actually had divided physical manifestations of tongues that appeared on fire. Or it could also be a way of saying that different languages were distributed to them. It could be either of those interpretations. All right. Nevertheless, if we're going to follow the Bible's own definition of this word. Either way, it could work. All right. So they were all filled. This is. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. These glossas are actually spoken. The first glossa appeared to them and it rested upon each of them. The second glossas, they're speaking them. All right? So they're speaking the glossas. All right? As the Spirit gave them utterance. So the context here is clear. They were speaking as opposed to the first time which it appeared to them. And the Spirit gave them the ability to speak these glossas. This is not something that they knew, but this is something that was given to them by the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what were they speaking? Verse 5, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's the context. Jews from different nations were visiting in Jerusalem, and these Jews were known, people call them the diaspora. We still use that word today. And it's similar. We, have, we still have it today, right? You have Steven Spielberg. He's a Jew. He's an American, right? What does he speak? English, right? Jerry Seinfeld, he's a Jew. 
He's an American. So you have Jews even today from France, Italy, and different places, and there are Jews from all these different nations. You had this same thing happening back then. And so you have all these Jews from all these different nations together gathered there, and at this sound, so they heard a sound. Now, I believe that's the sound of the mighty rushing wind that came. They heard it. They rushed, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. This is a different word. This word is dialectos. You know what that is. It's a dialect. So the Spirit gives the apostles the ability to speak in different languages. And as they are speaking in different languages, the Jews from different nations are hearing them in their own language. And so they start saying, whoa, whoa what's going on here? Okay. Verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? I mean, these guys are all from Israel. They're from Galilee. Okay, now apparently Galilee didn't have a good reputation. It was probably not the most educated, fancy place in town. Okay, um, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native dialectos, where we, we were born. In other words, how is it that they're from Galilee, we know they haven't been to anywhere else, yet they're speaking and we're understanding them in our own language. How is this possible? And then Luke provides the context. Parthians, Medes, these are all places, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, <coughs> proselytes, <coughs> Cretans, Arabians. We hear them in our own glossas, the mighty works of God. Here's what happened in the day of Pentecost. They received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Miraculously, the Spirit of God gives them the ability to speak in languages that they had not learned that they did not know, and the Jews who were there from all these different nations from the area were understanding them speak in the language that they were born, in their own native languages. So we have here, let's say, people from China, Russia, France, or whatnot, and I, me, uh, Olu and several of us start speaking in those languages and the people start understanding what we're saying in those languages. I haven't learned French, I haven't learned Russian, yet I can speak it. So what was happening in the day of Pentecost, from the context, from the word, from the text, is very simply that the promise of the Father in sending the other helper, that is the Holy Spirit, was fulfilled. And it was the beginning of a new covenant authenticated by signs and wonders. And the Holy Spirit gave the apostles and disciples the supernatural ability to speak in human languages that they had not learned. Now, I believe that this is going to set the standard or define every other mention of tongues in the book of Acts and the Bible. When you see the word tongues, which only appears three times in the Bible, the whole issue of tongues, I believe this is what's going to define it, because this is what explains what happened, right? This is the first time this occurs, and this is what is going to explain what happened, all right? So I believe that the gift of tongues, based on the scriptures, is a supernatural ability to speak other human languages that you had not learned, and not ecstatic utterances, all right? They were known languages, known human languages languages, right? So the question is, what's the point of this? Why would God do this? Why is this a gift given to the apostles? All right. Uh, first and foremost, and this is, is going to be somewhat of a complicated answer, it was a sign of judgment to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had rejected her Messiah. They had turned Jesus in and crucified Jesus. Uh, they have rejected 
the Son of God, and therefore as such, even proclaimed by Jesus himself, they were under judgment. The rejection of the Messiah was sealed the deal as far as God was concerned. All right? The nation as a whole was under the judgment of God. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, even while he was still alive. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as, hen, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the nation of Israel was under judgment. They had rejected God and eventually rejected the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law that is in the Old Testament, it is written, by people of a strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to these people. And even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues, Paul says, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now what Paul is doing, he's actually quoting Isaiah 28. And in Isaiah 28, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's about to pronounce a judgment on the nation of Israel. And he says to them, listen, I have broken things down for you, precept upon precept, line upon line. I have spoken to you in your own language, and yet you're still rebelling. You're still disobeying me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak to you with a foreign language. And what God goes on to prophesy is that the nation of Israel was going to be invaded by Assyria. He was going to send an army, the Assyrian army, to invade Israel. And God's going to say to them, because you don't want to listen to me in your own language, I'm going to speak to you by sending a foreign enemy who is going to invade you. And they're going to speak to you in their foreign language. So I'm going to speak to you in strange tongues. That was a sign of judgment. So Paul takes that Old Testament prophecy and applies it to modern times. He says, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, okay? And it's a sign that the nation of Israel is under judgment. What does that mean? Because it would be very hard for a Jew to buy the idea that God could speak and give a revelation in a language that was not theirs. God only spoke to them. How do you speak to a Hebrew? In Hebrew, right? So God begins to prophesy or begins to speak in other languages, Gentile languages, ultimately given his revelation of the New Testament in a completely foreign language, which is in Greek, which was a Gentile language. So for a Jew, it was very hard to swallow, okay? Number one, the gift of tongues has several purposes. Number one is to show the nation of Israel that they were under judgment. Number two, that God was not only worshipped in Hebrew and in Hebrew ways, but now God was to be worshipped in other languages, okay? And he was going to be praised in a foreign language altogether, all right? So what God is doing with this gift is he's reversing the issue of the Tower of Babel. Remember in the Tower of Babel, everybody spoke one language and only that one language, and that was the only thing. And they wanted to build a thing all the way to heaven. Well, God, what did God do? He just gave everybody different languages and they, nobody could understand what they were saying. So here's what God is doing. He's reversing that curse. He divided humanity in languages, and now he's uniting humanity in Christ in different languages. And that's why all the way up to the book of Revelation, you see men from every tribe, language, and nation. The reversing of Babel is happening right now. People were divided in different languages. People are being united in different languages now in Christ. All right? So this is a reversing, all right, of the Tower of Babel. All right? Lastly as to why God do this, is Pentecost was not about signs and wonders. This is a problem that people have. 
It's not about signs and wonders, but about the fulfillment and receiving of the promised Holy Spirit. If you read through the book of Acts, you will see this exact same event or similarly repeat itself several times more. In the book of Acts, it happens to the Jews, devout Jews from every nation of the heaven. If you go to Acts chapter 8, same thing happens but with the Samaritans. The disciples go out, they go to Samaria, and they begin preaching. And you f the same thing or similarly happens, but to the Samaritans. Why? Well, the Jews were Jews, <coughs> Hebrews, okay? And then you have the Samaritans. The Samaritans were mixed. They were Jew, but then they were also mixed with Gentiles. This is why the Jews wouldn't talk to them. The Jew wouldn't touch them because they were not pure like they were. Okay, then you get to Acts chapter 10, and Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, and Cornelius was a Gentile who was a God-fearer. He was an uncircumcised Gentile who was in the process of trying to become a Jew because he had believed that the God of Israel was the true God. Well, Peter goes, and the Gentile uh, convert had the exact same thing happen. In fact, go to Acts chapter 10, you're going to see... All the similarities. Peter was praying and he had a vision. He had a famous vision where he sees like a thing, a blanket, and you see all these non-approved animals to eat, right? Like pork or whatever. And God tells Peter, well, you know, take and eat, because he was hungry. He was waiting for the ladies to cook. He was hungry, so God brings out a blanket with all these different animals that were not, you know, according to the law, they were not to be eaten by a Jew. And God says, take and eat. And Peter was like, I can't eat that. I've never defiled myself. I'm a Jew. And then God says to him, don't call defile what I have undefiled. All right? And so, at the same time, there were some men sent to get Peter to go down to the house of Cornelius. All right? So he goes to the house of Cornelius. Verse 30. Let's start in verse 30. Cornelius said, he gets to the house. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. I said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore... We're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So here's what's happening. At the same time that Peter's having his vision over here, Cornelius is having a vision over here. And both visions were from God. So he sends people to get Peter. Now, interesting, Peter is in Joppa. Okay? Peter's real name is Simon. Simon bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. If you read the book of Jonah, you will find out that Jonah was in Joppa, and from Joppa, Jonah was sent to preach to who? Nineveh. Nineveh was not a Jewish city. Nineveh was a Gentile city. God does the exact same thing all over again. He sends Simon, the son of Jonah. He was not the literal son of Jonah. That Jonah died, you know, hundreds of years before. But Simon, he just so happened to have a last name that has to do with Jonah, is in Joppa, which just happens to be the city where Jonah was. And he's sent to preach to Cornelius, who is not a Jew. He's a Gentile, okay? God is sovereign, all right? So, verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on, on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets bear witness 
that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He just preached the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speak in languages and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? Almost said, and Peter declared, can we wait until uh, we have a baptism class? But I guess that didn't happen. Um, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. You have here another Pentecost. This time, instead of happening to Jews, it's happening to who? It's happening to Gentiles. The whole house of Cornelius were Gentiles, believers, and they received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so we have in the book of Acts, who is a historical account, a description of how God fulfilled his promise to his people to send them the Holy Spirit. First to Jews, right? First to the Jew, then to the Samaritan, then to believe in Gentiles, and eventually to all Gentiles, all right? And so the reason, and I want to explain this as short as I possibly can, the reason why you have in the book of Acts people who were believers who had yet the Holy Spirit is because they were living in an in-between time. They were coming from the old covenant. The new covenant is coming in, and they're in between. So they had believed the word of Jesus, but they were still awaiting for the promised Holy Spirit, which was to be sent. So God fulfills his promise first to the Jews who are in Jerusalem. And then those Jews in Jerusalem go on, they began preaching. And then they found some people from Samaria who had believed in the testimony of Jesus. And then as they hear that word, then God fulfills his promise to them. And then he goes on and he finds Gentiles who had believed the testimony and who had uh, believers in God, Yahweh, but they had not yet received the promised Holy Spirit because, you know, he has not preached to them yet. So, as, as they hear the word and they receive the Holy Spirit, then you get the signs. And as this moves, then that's how you see people who believe, who are believers, who had not yet received the Spirit. And the mistake that some Pentecostals make is that they teach that you could be saved today first and then later receive the Holy Spirit. That is a mistake. This is a historical, one-time, unrepeatable account. This happened to them because the Old Testament, the temple and everything was still there. It was fading away and the new covenant of Christ and then the Holy Spirit is moving in. This is a unique one-time historical event. We no longer live in that. Once the new covenant is ushered in altogether, all believers today receive the Holy Spirit when you get saved. You don't have to wait. You don't have to go and seek and pray, etc. You receive the Holy Spirit once you are converted. All right? Now, let me give you some verses. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all, and all were made to drink of one spirit. But the Apostle Paul goes on to teach in his epistles, who are teaching books, right? In the epistles, the Apostle Paul goes on to teach that all believers, Jew, Greek, black, white, slave, free, if you are saved by one spirit, you were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves and free, and we are all made to drink of that one spirit. What does that mean? That means that there is no believer. There is no believer that does not have the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, then you do not belong to Him. If you belong to Him, 
the logical conclusion is because you have the Spirit of Christ. If you hear people say, you're a believer, come down to receive the Spirit, that is an unbiblical notion. If you're a true believer and if you're saved, you don't have anything lacking. You don't have half the Spirit. You don't have a little portion of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God comes and dwells within you if you are a believer, if you're truly born again, okay? You don't have anything less than anybody else. There are Christians that are going to be more mature. There are Christians who have been in the faith longer than you. That's all fine. But you do not have anything less than anybody else, all right? I want you to understand that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through it all, and in all. He's in all. All that belong to Him have the Father, and they have the Son, and they have the Spirit. Nobody has any lack other than immaturity or whatnot. Right? We all have to grow in grace. All right? And so, lastly, I've said lastly like five times. That's perfectly fine. All right. The Apostle Paul actually says that in one of his letters. And lastly, and then three other chapters. All right. So, the question is, if this is true, if what I'm telling you and described to you today is true, and I believe it's what the Bible clearly teaches, then what are Charismatics and Pentecostals doing? Right, what is happening um, in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement? Okay, what are people doing when they're speaking in what they call tongues? All right. Now, there may be several possibilities, of course. Um, a lot of people will say it's demonic possession. That may be the case in some extreme cases, I don't know, but I'm, I do not believe okay, that everyone who speaks in ecstatic utterances is demon possessed. That's ridiculous, okay? I don't want to say that. Many charismatics, some of which I know personally, are godly people, brothers in Christ who love the Lord. All right. I do believe that there might be, and probably in the most, most cases, a psychological component to it. My observations, having grown up in the charismatic Pentecostal movement, is usually this happens in moments of euphoria. Music is loud. Everybody needs to come forward. Uh, there might be some pressure, peer pressure. You have, to, you have to get this, you have to get this, you have to get this, you have to get this. If you go to like the old school stuff, it's even probably worse where you have to. In some places you cannot even serve unless you speak in tongues. In some places you have to, you know, to go to Bible Institute, you have to speak in tongues, uh, whatever. There is pressure. There is emotional things involved in it. There also very well may be some learned behavior, right? You learn it, you do it, you do it. Usually it may come in moments, like I said, of euphoria and excitement. And that may be some of what happens, at least in my observations and in my experience, that's how it all came about, all right? Is it bad? Is it sinful, right? Is it something wrong? No. Okay, there's nothing necessarily, you know, if you want to go somewhere and do ecstatic utterances or whatever, in and of itself, that's not a moral thing, right? The problem arises is in the idea and belief that if you do this, you're somehow more powerful or you're somehow more spiritual. Now, anybody who knows the history of the charismatic movement and a lot of the scandals that have happened in the movement, a lot of constant sexual scandals, bribery, money, and all that stuff knows that this cannot possibly be true because if it was true, this would not be happening at a, I mean, all churches have their stuff. Everybody, all churches, all denominations, all traditions are full of sinful people who do sinful things. In the charismatic movement, it tends to be multiplied by insanity amounts, okay? Prosperity teaching, money-hungry people, money theft, scandals, etc. So if this was true, then there would be some evidence of that and there isn't. Nobody's more spiritual than anybody else just because they do this thing, okay? Like I said, you're not lacking anything. The Bible tells you if you're a believer and in Christ, 
you have the whole Holy Spirit of God. The full Holy Spirit of God came and dwelled inside of you. You have been given, in Christ, you have been given all things. Now, whether or not you use them and you employ them, that's another thing. But you have been given everything. You're not lacking anything. And the historical, uh, verifiable accounts of people in the charismatic movement with all the scandals and with all the sins that happened prove that this is not a powerful thing that makes you better. Okay? So, what makes you spiritual and mature in the faith is the understanding and knowing of scriptures and biblical doctrine and obedience to the Word of God. See, the Christian faith is this consistent faith, this long, consistent faith that goes up. It's not up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down looking for the latest thing that is out there, looking for the new experience that I need to have, looking for the new um, healing campaign that is coming, looking for constantly, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is this consistent, you know, going up and growing in maturity and understanding of the Word of God. It's not up and down. It's not eventful. It's not full of adventure like some people portray it. And what happens with this, when you make claims then you have to substantiate the claims, right? <coughs> so if you're claiming these great, extravagant presence of God in every service, you have to deliver. That's how you keep people coming, right? I, you know, Popeye's claims they have the best chicken sandwich, right? They have to deliver. If you show up and there is no chicken sandwich, then you, you're going to leave. You're going to be there. You promised me a chicken sandwich. I came here at 11, at 10.58, okay? This is what a friend of mine told me. I came here at 10.58. That friend is me. Okay, whatever. All right? <laughs> and you say to me, I don't have, we don't have chicken sandwiches. What's that? That's an ad. It has a picture of a chicken sandwich. What's going on here? Popeyes needs Jesus. Anyways, the, the, uh, if you make claims, you have to keep those claims. So what happens is emotionalism, music, lights, wonder, excitement. That's how you keep people coming. And if once that is satisfied and that no longer does it, then you have to go and give something else and something else and something else. It's not the Christian faith. That's not the Christian life. And the Christian life, we are in a consistent growth by learning and understanding the Word of God and applying the Word of God to all areas of life. That's how we grow. That's how a church grows, doing, you know, reading from the Scriptures and explaining the Scriptures. That's how we grow. And it has come um, to the point that there are people if you go to the church and just open the Bible like I do and just sit here and speak, they will leave. It's not exciting enough. It's not it's boring. Okay? That's the problem when you have these type of experiences. Okay? And so I still have to go through 1 Corinthians where it talks about tongues. I will do that in the next sermons. But for now, uh, one thing that I wanted to get across here is you're not lacking anything. God has given you all things. You have the Spirit of God, all right? The gift of tongues was a gift, I believe. I believe it served its purpose. It was there for a reason. Languages were used. I think it's clear from the text that it was languages that they were speaking, and it was languages that people were understanding, human, known, physical, earthly languages, and that it served its purpose to get the message across very quickly to all people's because that's what God's intention has always been. God's intention was never be to have one nation here who hears from Him. God's intention always was to get this one nation to go around. They didn't do it. He went ahead and did His own thing. And He got His message to the whole world. And when the Bible ends in the future, you're going to have men from every tribe, tongue, and nation praising and worshiping God in their own languages. That's an amazing thing. 
This started with a bunch of Jewish people who were a small group of people in Jerusalem. Nobody here has been, well, some of you may have been to Jerusalem. I haven't been to Jerusalem. Nobody's been to Jerusalem. That was 2,000 years ago, yet here we are reading and teaching the same word that they were proclaiming in a completely lang a language that didn't even exist back then, which is English. Here we are with the Word of God. That was God's plan, all right? So um, we'll get to the 1 Corinthians uh, next week, which talks about tongues and certain things, claims that are made. Um, but for now, if you get anything out of this message, is you're not lacking everything. You have been giving all things in Christ. Use them. Because if you don't use them, then yes, that's where you get the differences between mature Christians, non-mature Christians, etc. But other than that, you have the same spirit, you've been baptized into the same body, and we're all drinking of the same spirit, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you that you always fulfill all of your promises, Lord. We thank you that you, as Jesus said, um, would send us a helper, and you send us your helper, Lord. Uh, we thank you. Uh, for your word, Lord, we thank you for your mercy to spread this message to the uttermost parts of the world, Lord, and them heathen, pagan people who could have never otherwise heard of your name. You brought this word to them in a way that they could understand it right down to us today. We thank you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.